0: I don't think anybody is stupid enough to suggest that you don't have to do training. Like obviously you have to train for whatever it is you're going to do. Otherwise you'll never get good at it. But I think what it does highlight, which probably a lot of coaches as you suggested have spent time uh, doing their job realize, is that that other stuff is as important, if not sometimes more important than the physical training, because for example, the life stress, that sets the stage for when that athlete comes into the gym so that will determine to a certain extent what your physical training is going to be
1: welcome back team another week here with drew and alex Uh, this week we have an interesting guest on Uh, we were first i suppose first notified of this individual when his his paper made the rounds on social media and then lo and behold one of the co-authors, one of his mentors academically is my personal favorite and a friend of the show, Dr. John Kiley. So Alex, who are we talking to this week?
2: Drew, I appreciate you for leaving it to me to pronounce his name. Of I course. I will promise to get his first name correct and then no promises on the last name. Our guest this week is Kechi Anyadyke-Danes. Sorry, Kechi. Probably screwing that up, but we'll call him Kechi for the rest of the episode. Uh, Kechi is a doctoral student at the German Sport University Cologne, where he has been looking at various aspects of athlete preparation and how coaches perceive various theories, concepts and strongly held beliefs that exist in the training literature. You'll hear this plenty in this episode, but he has a particular interest in the reasons for divisions that seem to exist between sports scientists and coaches regarding certain topics. As Drew mentioned, his doctoral research is being supervised and helped by a friend of the pod, John Kiley from the University of Limerick, as well as Lars Donath from the German Sport University, Cologne. So
1: the paper, and we'll, we'll have all this in the show notes, obviously, but the, the paper that he wrote is entitled, "Coaches' Perceptions of Factors Driving Training Adaptation, an International Survey. Uh, and as the title would suggest, they surveyed coaches' views on basically on topics related to the training process. They surveyed over a hundred coaches, which is a, which is a large sample size. Uh, and what was most interesting was that 99% of them indicated that non-physical factors influence the physical training response, which I think for us, at least if you've listened to the show for any amount of time, just kind of confirms our bias that it, it's really not the reps and sets that make as big of a difference as we think that they do. I'll give a lot of kudos to Keiichi as well. We've We've had several academics on the podcast and it's always enjoyable to sort of ask questions to that side of the human performance industry but Keichi is one of the rare ones rare ones who is also super passionate and knowledgeable about human performance in general and, and you should hopefully pick this up in the chat that we have with him because while the the primary topic and the primary focus initially was the paper that they wrote it becomes a more wide-ranging conversation covering a lot of interesting topics and he's he's certainly one of those types of guests that we could easily foresee coming back on again to keep the conversation going
2: completely agree with that i know i saw this paper even like as we were planning to record with kei and after the conversation happened before it published i saw this posted on a bunch of different places i saw like ranger regiment human performance page talking about it a little bit lots of coaches um, and there's no surprise that it kind of caught fire in the coaching space because it's one of those that bridges the gap between research and practical application drew mentioned that 99 percent of them said non-physical factors influence training outcomes but i'd i'd encourage people to like look through the paper it's not super long there's some good graphics if you don't want to read too many words but i'll I'll shout out there are they'll shout out kind of a key takeaway for me is he looked at like specifically like how important coaches think certain factors are and athletes belief in the plan absolutely blew having a detailed and specific plan out of the water in terms of how important coaches believe that it is and that's something i think a lot of coaches understand. It's not something that seems to be emphasized in the textbooks that coaches have to work through when they're getting trained and when they're preparing cer- for certification. So there's there's an understanding in the community that this stuff is important, but it's not what people are being trained and educated on when they're getting schooled up on these topics before they get launched out into the field.
1: Well, and I mean, I think that that's one of the things we teased out a little bit with him, with our questions. And and one of the things that he's really passionate about is just the way that the way that sports science research is structured and how, you know, it's 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 hard to set up a, a study that would be accepted as a traditional quote-unquote study that would actually tease out some of these things. It's much easier to take 18, you know, moderately trained college-age males and put them on a leg press and, and put together a study. And, and I think that that drives a lot of the literature, like you were mentioning. And for the folks that will inevitably not read the paper i'll I'll quickly read off these three key points that they have um, on the overview and it's that coaches viewed non-physical factors as playing an important role in influencing the response to physical training which we already mentioned the second one was that four non-physical factors considered by the coaches to be important in determining how an athlete will physically adapt to a training plan are rarely if ever acknowledged in the training literature which is one of the things you just mentioned and then the last key point that they made is that there is a scientific basis for these factors playing an important role, as evidenced by research leading training theory to be slightly at odds with both the coaches' views and scientific evidence. So, not a long paper at all, like you mentioned, but definitely an impactful one, and I think definitely an important one.
0: Enjoy. I'm not sure if this is pertinent to what you're gonna we're gonna talk about, whatever. So this could be in it, it might not be in yeah. it. Yeah, but like. Because of John's stuff, which is kind of what got me in, was periodization. Yeah. The original periodization from like the Soviet era, it was like the 50s, like 56, I think it was created for the 60s Olympics. That was like created with a sole purpose of getting athletes to peak Mm
2: -hmm. on time.
0: Now, I don't know. I'm not gonna lie, I'm a civilian. But anything that my understanding of the military is, there is no like peaking, like, yes, guys, this is it. This is the way. Like, obviously, World War ii we had invasions. Like, but like, once you're at war, you're at war. It's like you just can't take an off day and be like, yeah, that's yeah, it. It's and a deload week. <laughs> exactly. It's like oh, need need a deload week. Exactly. I need to have a deload yeah. week this week. Not really. You just have to keep going. um And I think that's the kind of a problem that. That's why I'm not sure necessarily how well these things cross over from like a sporting performance kind of thing. I mean, performance in the most general sense, yeah, I get that. But that's a very different kind of thing, I think, from sporting performance, which is also outside of game type stuff. Mm -hmm. Really precise. Like I did weightlifting. That's like two movements, essentially, or three, if you want to count the jerk as a separate movement. I mean, that's it. So, I mean, like, you know, you guys have to do way more things just to be very adaptable. I mean, probably the closest thing is doing something like forbid the word but crossfit i mean that's mm, probably mm-hmm. closer to what the military has to deal with than or even a heptathlete probably does it's still set events you guys you know need to do way different kinds of stuff so yeah, yeah.
2: well he's and to that's to get hot he's gonna trigger a uh, bunch of coaches
0: there
1: but i think it's it's appropriate because you even see i mean man i'm thinking of all the different quote-unquote tactical strength and conditioning books you see and they they all kind of move towards this beautiful macro model of like a year or two years and like you just mentioned sort of a deployment becomes the quote-unquote game and you peek for it and there's like it's an excel sheet and, and i mean i understand where that comes from because that's what you're taught and that's what like you mentioned the russian stuff like it maps to that but it doesn't you know a deployment could be nine months it could be a year combat could be 10 minutes it could be a couple of hours and like what does combat even entail and how do you train for it? and so again i think that's one of the cool things that you were able to tease out with with what you did which is like a lot of the non i'll call them like non-gym based factors are really Mm -hmm. what drive progress and that's again we could we could say that over and over again on every single episode and there would still be people out there being like yeah okay great but like how many reps are we supposed to do on the back squat on monday like that's what really matters
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and that's I think that's actually going to be like a future thread of research that I'm going to try and look at is like, so there's the repetition continuum kind mm-hmm. of idea, which is, you know, the sets, the rep zone for intensity. And then you can add sets on top of that for certain things, hypertrophy, strength, endurance, maximal strength, blah, blah, all that kind of stuff. And that's like totally like the world that we live in. Everything is super quantified, crunch the numbers, all that kind of stuff. But like, I think for every time you found that works, you can find another time that it doesn't work. And I think the, the big bit that's kind of coming in the research now, not so much necessarily in sports, I think people like John, et cetera, trying to drive it, is that that's a super simply reductive way of understanding what happens. And it's fueled by a real historic approach to science which is still what we do by and large in the medical field and it's not always excessive in the medical field but you know the difference between them and us is i don't inject squats into your quads i do (laughs) inject you with a drug so you know we have to have an interaction you have to mentally stimulate yourself to go do the squat do the bench press whatever you don't I mean, and we know there's placebo effects and everything that can dampen certain drugs, whatever. But still, you just like have to pop that, inject it, whatever. And that's it. Like, that's the majority of effort that you have to put in to do that. So that makes it order, automatically a very different thing. But we're still using a lot of mm-hmm. medical things. And a lot of the medical realm realize that that paradigm isn't working anymore. Um, that's why, you know, one of the big reasons why we have uh, issues with cancer research, mm-hmm. because you, that's not how cancer like the actual thing is cancer works. Um, And I think that's why we see the same thing in in sports, exercise science kind of world when it comes to training. And I think while coaches have probably known that and anybody who's trained knows that for a long time, it's kind of covered up by the way that we do research. Because if you look at, I would say 95% studies at a bare minimum, how many actually show individual respondents and how well they've done or how poorly they've done now you get group or mean averages maybe standard deviations or whatever but that covers up everything and like there's a really good paper which is only fortunately one of them which essentially took group results individual results from the same study and tried to find anybody that you could pair like the mean result to an individual and they found it didn't so the mean Mm -hmm. change did not actually reflect any single individual in that study. Because at the end of the day, what is the mean? You just just smush everybody together. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so it's actually nobody. There is nobody that is the mean individual. So that then it creates a real question of how do you take group research and apply it to any single individual. And I hear a lot of people in the like sports science world who I think have noticed this and they're trying to battle with how do you do it? Oh, you don't take it quite literally. And like you don't literally. We don't literally expect that you're gonna put on two kilograms on your back squat, or two kilograms of lean mass, or whatever it is you're gonna try and do. This is just an indicator of you know that it's worked. It's like okay, cool. What well, it worked for some people, but it didn't work for other people. So how do I know to use it or not? And how do I know if it's been effective or not?
1: Mm-hmm. And how do I know
0: if it'll be effective next time or not? And yeah. these are the questions that the, the research aren't. I mean, and I shouldn't say this is just sports science, but the whole kind of paradigm has shifted. And although we can still do experiments, what we can take from experiments is actually quite limited in terms of like actual like hard applicability. Like we can say maybe this will do this, but you can't say for sure that it's going to do that. But we've grown up being taught, at least I was. That like if we do if i do four sets of eight to 12 reps i'm probably going to get some increase in muscle mass if my diet's right as well as some increase in maximal strength I'm like well no maybe sadly that's not the case maybe <laughs> if you're lucky maybe you'll get worse and yeah. maybe you'll get lighter yeah <laughs> who knows so, yeah anyway, i like that's this. that. This fits, in,
2: <laughs> this fits in really well to the conversation we had recently with the data-driven strength guys about like maybe there's a need to move away from finding those means that might not be accurate mm-hmm. to even any people, but certainly not everybody. Their direction they're trying to go is conducting research that helps people understand which category they fit into it as an individual and predict those individual responses rather than just lumping everybody together and assuming the mean is useful. Mm-hmm. I think that's a an interesting potential next step for the direction research can go.
0: Definitely. I guess for me, the paradigm shift that I guess I'm kind of referring to is like what people call like complex systems, which um, Mm. I really don't want to get too bogged down in the details. But essentially what that means, though, um, is it's trying to actually get around a problem that we had solved or we thought we'd solved, which was we're just going to reduce everything to its smallest parts, which we can then control. And that will then allow us to predict how things are going to happen. And so now we're saying, okay, well, actually, different things at different levels will have an effect. So that's like the biopsychosocial kind of model. But if you're accepting that, then how can you still use the same methods from the world where you disregarded all that stuff to begin with to drill further down? And that's the bit that's like squaring that kind of thing. That's the real problem that a lot of people have is how do you do that? And with regards to, like, individual stuff, like, we know there's inter-individual difference, but there's also quite a bit of intra individual difference. There's a great study that looked at um, people training at, like, high altitude. Like, these are experienced endurance runners. They went and trained at high altitude. And while their, like, physiological stuff was, I think, quite the same, um, they found that their performance changes weren't the same. So that means they essentially redid, the same protocol and they got different results some got better some stayed the same some got worse in terms of percentage change so you compared percentage change on the two trials and that tells me then it's not going to be the same each time which you know like every coach intuitively knows and that's cool that every coach intuitively knows that and if you do anything you'll know that but that's not how the literature talks about these things because we presume it's like okay that's how we got these things that's how we know that we should do certain you know protocols um and i think that yeah that's that's a question that we don't really want to deal with so far at least that's my experience like sports science doesn't really want to deal with that stuff uh because it is really messy and to a certain extent i think it then ends up like, I think we all know that there's this idea that, you know, science sits in like an ivory tower and it like mm-hmm. peers down and dishes out advice to everybody, to us lemmings at the level <laughs> or world, whatever.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but if you start to say that actually we don't have all the answers, which yes, okay, most of them will say that, but also that we're not really sure that we can tell you in like a strict kind of advice, like if you do this, you'll get this result. Well, then the question is, what is the difference between you doing a study with, let's say, 10 not great people and a coach having maybe five good athletes that records all their data throughout the year, Mm -hmm. which which is more useful. To be honest, even though I have limited coaching, I would still prefer to read five, say, year long case studies from a coach where they detail everything and contextualize it, because that's the other thing that we don't do. When we do a training study, we don't say, well... One reason why he might have sucked on this day is although he was making great progress for the first three weeks when he came in to do his test on week four uh he got sideswiped. actually on the way in wasn't hurt but like he was like pretty shaken up about it well okay well that would really explain why he tanked in his one around all of a sudden after showing like three weeks of like you know what might look like progress but these are the things that don't get reported but like coaches who have conversations with their athletes will know this stuff. And I just, to me, I feel like if I could read coaching, good documented coaches' experiences with athletes, I would probably glean more insights than just reading the normal training studies that we have. And that's, I know, a really unpopular point of view.
1: Well, no, I mean, because as you're saying that, it almost it almost answers a question that I think Alex and I have talked about quite a bit on here, which is like, what? And, and I don't want to NSCA bash necessarily, but it's almost like... <laughs> What role does the NSCA serve or or any governing body in human performance? What role do they really serve? Because I think historically we take, you know, the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research and, and like Essentials of Strength and Conditioning, all of these things get handed down, like you said, from this sort of ivory tower. But then you read these studies and it's, oh, you know, 15 college age males did the isokinetic leg, blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, that, that does nothing for me. As a coach. And so as you're talking, it's like, man, it would be really cool if an, if an organization like that could drive a shift in thinking where as a coach, as a young coach, you're not only taught how to work with athletes and how to actually apply some of the psychology and the human factors to it, but you're also taught how to track data, log training and contextualize that. So we could almost create a unique body of quote unquote research, which is what you said, because it would be so cool. To instead of receiving the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research in my inbox, I get a handful of training manuals from guys that have worked with five athletes, ten athletes, and all of the materials there. It's all contextualized. I have all the biographical information of all the athletes, and I can see what worked. I mean, I'm thinking of the uh, the Norwegian. I think it was a Norwegian speed skater who did the 10k, and he mm-hmm. just put his entire training diary online with all of the stuff. I mean, that was fascinating to read. And everything in there, well, I don't want to say everything, but most of the stuff in there is not what you would be taught in a strength and conditioning program. Like it kind of flies in the face of some of it. He's doing like eight hour bike rides at super high wattages, but he won a gold medal in his event. So like I don't know. I realize I'm on a soapbox right now, but no. I, I think what you're getting at is super interesting because it's like, hey, instead of instead of just producing more and more training studies that may or may not have any effect on actually working with athletes, it'd be cool if if Some governing body pushed like hey here's here's what actual coaches are doing i just don't see a world where that happens because the academic side of the house needs to justify its existence if if that makes sense
0: (laughs) well and that's the thing i mean so this is the bit that i mean there's a couple of things i find interesting about like the what you just said but also sports science so in terms of the coaching aspect um so one of the before I actually read any of John's stuff, one of the biggest turning points for me was um, I got to go on two separate trips uh, to China to train with somebody who was my coach for for a couple of years and is now a very close friend of mine, a guy called Coach Yang. So he was he's another Olympic weightlifter, was an Olympic weightlifter. He worked his way up to the national squad, and he I got to ask him quite a few questions when I was in China about. How he became a coach because, like, there's different pathways, different countries take different pathways, and the Chinese thing is slightly influenced by this Soviet model that existed previously. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, um, normally to get to become a coach, you have to have been an athlete. So he ticked that box, obviously, and then you find somebody who's going to essentially mentor you. I was like, okay, cool. And then in his instance, once he found a mentor and he found an athlete, he had to then coach that athlete to the national level and then he had to do a theory exam but the theory exam was actually like this so it's a, it's a conversational thing so it's not a written theory exam
1: mm-hmm.
0: And what i found really interesting about that was that so you'd be assessed the entire time as well while you're coaching your athlete through, the, through however long it takes is that that whole process means that you have people who i guess we would call your peers who are watching you and it is them who really get to decide whether they think that you have ticked the boxes to be a good coach versus some accreditation body um, mm-hmm. that, you know, well, dubious at times. Um, so, and that's not just the NSCA for anybody that's saying, there's like lots of others out there that are just as problematic. Um, sure. So I think that's a very different approach to coaching. Um, but, with regards to the sports science and the ivory tower what i think is really important about that is that you know there is it's interesting because sports science is obviously very young we're very late into the game and it was like yes science solves everything that's like the way you know the way we're going and i have nothing against science i love it that's why i do science but it also is a very particular way of viewing what science can and cannot do and in a way it was always came to me across to me as like oh these poor coaches it's like they're fucking living in the victorian era or in the cave age they're just so antiquated in what they're doing let us help them and you know we'll do sports research and that will help us we will help them like we are giving them this gift kind of situation and i think what's really interesting is you know at the same time we then started to see sports results like go through the roof um especially from the Cold War onwards. But people don't really talk about, at least I don't think enough people acknowledge, a lot of things that went on there that was not just sports science. Aside from the sports science, it's the pharmaceutical situation that we don't need to go down because that's obviously <laughs> a whole different hell of fish. But it was only, I want to say it was like in the, in the 60s, maybe 70s, for the first time when you had full-time athletes in that situation doing things like track and field. Most athletes before that were not. And there's a whole argument about how it happened. People say it was the Soviets, but at the same time, what, all that happened is the Soviets made all their kids do sports in school because they wanted them to be strong members of Soviet. not because they're necessarily going to go to the Olympics, but because they wanted to have a strong workforce and sports is a way of, you know, keeping your workforce healthy. So that then professionalized over time sports. So now you have people who previously maybe did a bit of training after work or whatever. Now their literal life is just to train. So mm-hmm. now you can sleep better. And now we can start to tweak all the things. So now you can get like good night's sleep. We can feed you properly. You can train twice a day. Sometimes if you're crazy enough to do that, except well, you got all that stuff. And then we have sports tech on top of that. So we change tracks. So obviously, you know, you see like um like pre I think it's like pre Second World War, like when they would do like runs like it was on a dirt track. Yeah, it wasn't on the cat. So and then we change things like shoes. So like all of these things, and I think I saw a study once, you know, asking the questions that, you know, if you gave some of the sprinters, best sprinters from like the Berlin kind of like Olympic Games, if you gave them all the stuff that all the sprinters have now, like probably wouldn't be same bolt. But how could they good could how good could they have been if you took all the stuff that we have now, the tech, the training, and not even just the sets and reps, it was just the time to train, mm-hmm. all that stuff, would so it's not necessarily that, you know, sports science has necessarily done much, but there's also been a massive social change and social structure change that has allowed us to do that. We've said that sports is important to us. So we're going to pay these people. They can make good livelihoods. So now there's an, a real incentive behind it, whereas before, like a lot of them were just amateurs. So yeah. there's like, you know, a certain kind of incentive, but a different kind of incentive. Uh, not sure if that went too off track, but I just think that changes the, the picture entirely about yeah. how much sports science has really done to move the dial on like superhuman performance type situations
1: well it makes me think of um i mean there's a ted talk and i've i've watched it three or four times i'm sure but david epstein he talks about our athletes and i pulled it up so i get the title right our athletes really getting faster better stronger yeah
0: that was it yeah and
1: he i'm going to butcher this presentation but i know he he show, he sort of plots exactly what you're talking about and there's this massive change around the f- 60s or 70s maybe where prior to that you know every everybody on the football team for example is is roughly the same size and shape and then all of a sudden you see people specializing you see 300 pound linemen you see super tall nba players and it's it's i think he looked as well at like you mentioned track surfaces and then um technology in the pool and referenced, I don't remember which Olympics it was, but when they, when they created that like seal skin swimsuit or whatever, oh, yeah. ev- everyone broke world records and they had to like walk it back and be like, ah, no, just kidding. So it's less about, like you mentioned, the human, the human element and more of the technology piece. Alex include that in the show notes. Cause that's a really cool. Already talk done. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I just think that's important because I think, and I'm not saying that like studying the training hasn't done anything like that is, like, I don't want to go down that and be like, you know, we just didn't need to do any of it. But I think that there's a perception like it, that it's done a lot more mm-hmm. than it possibly has. Like, I wouldn't say that the reason Usain Bolt destroyed world records was because we had his coach had a good grounding in sports science and had done blah blah, blah, blah. like, I, ju- if you if that's if people believe that, then I think that's kind of delusional because I just don't think that's the case. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, here, let me, I want to sidestep a little bit and I want to turn this over (laughs) to your paper and I want to ask just to set the context and and set the groundwork here. Can you talk us through the study design and kind of knowing what you know about sports science and your thoughts and and theories about it that we just went through? Like what was in your mind as you went about setting this up?
0: It was a survey, an online survey. This, the bit that's published now is like one of three parts. So there, hopefully, hopefully there will be two other bits that will be published. One is in review. Yeah, exactly. And then there's a third part that needs to be submitted. Um, But essentially, I guess the big bit of what I wanted to look at, was to encapsulate certain things. One is like question some of these dogmatic things that we have, which John has already done. So I don't want to over rehash them. Periodization, blah, 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 all that other kind of stuff. Some of the kind of, I guess, uh, groundwork that we base a lot of our stuff on. But also see where coaches are because at the end of the day, and I think this kind of comes back to some of the stuff we talked about before, is like sports science, at least in my eyes, and I've seen this in other journals as well, like sports science is meant to aid coaches. Um so what I wanted to see is what do what coaches think and do align with what sports science is suggesting. Now I feel I know there was going to be I was worried initially, but I don't think I am now because, you know, there's going to there'd easily be a bit of, as we just talked about, coach bashing kind of situations like they're just uneducated. If they gave the wrong answers, the wrong answers, whatever or wrong answer is, they'll be like, oh, they're just not educated enough, blah, 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 blah. Thankfully, that wasn't actually the case because we got a really good like spread of people. We got almost everybody had some kind of formalized education in terms of post-school kind of education. That's not to say that you have to, but that's just as an indicator for those kind of people that would be, oh, they haven't
2: Mm. done any
0: of the book work, theory work, whatever. And we had like 11%, there's like 106 um, coaches, 11% had PhDs. And I would say a large number had master's degrees. So they're pretty well-studied people. Um, They came almost half and half from team sports and individual sports which i think is crucial because they have very or traditionally it's been suggested they have very different outlooks because the Mm -hmm. needs of those two groups tended you know are quite different so my thinking was behind okay so we'll get these coaches we'll get them to do an online survey and i knew there, I, i was also worried because qualitative mixed methods anything that's not pure quantitative kind of stuff people are although we do descriptive statistics, I don't try to infer things. So I'm not trying to generalize it like a study does. That tends to be also um, looked down upon, um, tends to be. So that was a bit of, I guess, worry. But yeah, so I guess that's it. So yeah, so I, I decided, okay, let's see what these coaches think about some of these questions that both John and I have had in the back of our heads for quite a while. And it seemed to be really at the cusp of what needs to change so it's not reflected in this one although it touches on it but like there's ones that we have about periodization stuff in particular the aspects of periodization so not just periodization good versus periodization bad but like different aspects of periodization and are they using them and then the final one is on coaches' ability to predict which is kind of linked to this one because surprise surprise i'm not going to brush anybody's oil here but Coaches didn't think they could really predict um, mm-hmm. training outcomes that well. If you look at the current paper that just the one that came out, the one we're talking about now, considering how many thought that non-physical factors played a really important part, not just in performance, but also in adaptation, uh, those things are almost impossible to predict. Like you can't predict how much stress, like non quote unquote physical stress somebody is going to be under for a year that's going to fluctuate wildly you can try and control it but you probably won't be able to and so if that has an effect on physical training then the chance of being able to predict an outcome is obviously going to be deeply problematic
2: Mm -hmm. so So this is fascinating me because we had a it must have been like six months ago now or something like that but there was like a whole fight on our page about like can coaches predict like how much more a person is going to squat two months from now and there were coaches that like pretty mad at us for arguing that probably not but how dare you that was that was a dramatic thing um one thing i want to lay out before we keep going with the conversation is you talked about asking coaches what they thought the most important factors are in training and i want to lay out your findings just for the people who are listening to this Mm -hmm. who haven't read the paper and i'm I'm just going to quote straight from you here (laughs) the top five factors in modifying an athlete's ability to physically adapt to a training plan as rated absolutely essential by these coaches were number one, coach-athlete relationship, number two, life stress, number three, athlete's belief in the plan, number four, psychological and emotional stress, and then after all those things, physical training. Mm -hmm. And I think that just speaks to – I think people realize that once they've been doing it for a little bit, but I think if you came straight out of a master's program and you went straight into that master's program from an undergraduate program and all you ever had was the classroom version of strength and conditioning – you would probably assume it would be the opposite order.
0: Yeah, so I think there's just one thing I really want to clarify on because I have seen it go around on Twitter and somebody clearly misinterpreted because they didn't, they maybe read the abstract and possibly didn't read the abstract properly despite it being an open source thing. They didn't actually (laughs) click on the paper to read it. It's also
2: not that long guys. It's not like it's a quick It's only eight pages including the the references
0: I think. (laughs) So the question is how important do you think The following factors are in modifying how well athletes physically adapt to the training plan. So there's a few key things here that does not mean that they were ranking these things. So it is not that this is like some kind of rank because it wasn't. And I think personally, I would have never asked that question because I think it's kind of an idiotic question because I don't think you can actually rank things like that. You're not trying to make
2: a BuzzFeed whisticle out of your article.
0: well i mean considering what we were talking about before um like although we used to separate all these things like you know we have sports psychology physiology biomechanics tend to be the three kind of basics you can't really separate these things out so you have to have all of them so i'm not sure how you could really honestly weight something and be like mm, <laughs> yeah their their psychological stress is like one percent in comparison to, i mean like you can't how do you even know that that's like Anyway, so <laughs> I just want to correct anybody who's under belief that that's what I'm suggesting there. The coaches were not ranking these things interdependently of each other. Um, and it's also to adapt to a training plan. So the important bit about that is that a training plan, as anybody hopefully understands, takes in uh, to sort of account everything. Mm-hmm. So they're not just physical. Like they're although it says physically adapt to a training plan, there are also non physical bits to a training plan because you might not technically count technique training as part of your physical training, whereas you might count, say, doing the gym, the S&C type stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay. So I think that was a really interesting finding as well, which most people, well, I think some of the coaches might have expected. I don't know. I don't think necessarily some of the sports science people might have expected that result and they might want to question that result. But I think it needs to be seen in the context that it's not saying that you just uh, somebody actually did suggest that, you know, if the coach's best friend just talked to the coach and didn't do any training, all of a sudden they would become like an amazing athlete. Like that's I don't think anybody is stupid enough to suggest that you don't have to do training. Like, obviously, you have to train for whatever it is you're going to do. Otherwise, you'll never get good at it. But I think what it does highlight, which probably a lot of coaches, as you suggested, have spent time uh, doing their job realize is that that other stuff is as important if not sometimes more important than the physical training because for example the life stress that sets the stage for when that athlete comes into the gym so that will determine to a certain extent what your physical training is going to be i definitely know that if i got three hours sleep um i was really stressed out by uni uh, and my training plan said I had to max out and I did max out whatever I max out is going to be. It's not going to be anywhere near my best max out session, uh, historically speaking, even if I was doing when I was younger than I am now. It's just and I think everybody knows that. So I don't know why people want to like act like this It's crazy. This is surprising. It's actually fairly logical if you actually think it through. And I think the only thing that's crazy about it for me is that no study wants to report any of this i mean if we think about it anybody that's because super you know was a hot thing at least when i started this monitoring everybody loves monitoring you can't Mm -hmm. get enough monitoring whether it's like one of the questionnaires that has been standardized whether it's your own personal questionnaire whatever like or it's having a conversation with what i only call monitoring that you know that's the stuff that everybody is really 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 into But how many studies, although we have monitoring studies, how many normal training studies actually have monitoring data to go along with their training studies? Almost none. Mm -hmm. I mean, can we even just get like an RPE before we even start each session to know like, like how you felt? You know, like how many hours, like there's no data. So I have no idea how these people get in there, but we all know it's important, but nobody wants to talk about it in training studies.
1: Why? I mean, you basically asked <clears throat> asked this question for me, but like, why do you think that that is? Because I could see it going one of two ways, right? Like, we've we've labeled these factors as as somewhat essential based on the the way that you phrase those questions, but yet, like you mentioned in traditional in traditional research, they're either ignored. Or they're just kind of given lip service and they, they like, mm-hmm. you know, oh yeah, we checked the biopsychosocial box, like we referred to, you know, subjective questionnaire or whatever. Is it, do you think it's that the academic field like would disagree that those things are essential or are they just not as easily measured as some of the more quantitative things like, you know, oh, their, their leg press strength increased 10% in the last eight weeks. Like that, that frames itself nicely into this traditional model of science. Mm-hmm. Like why do you, why do you think that that is?
0: I think there's a couple of things. Um, I think there might be some people who would um, question like how important Mm -hmm. the idea that this stuff is like the icing on the cake kind of situation. It's like great if you can nail it, but you could probably still be a world champion without doing it. Um, I think the other thing is that historically speaking, uh, where we've come from in, in terms of science, like the the historical side of science influence runs through sports science has always wanted to get rid of that stuff like i'm not sure if john's mentioned i think he might have like the biomedical model and that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff like that's the whole idea that you don't need to think about that stuff because that stuff is like purely subjective and it's not it's not it's not real (laughs) it's in your head it's it's in your head (laughs) yeah so you know and i think that more and more people realize that's not the case with regards to actually doing it. There is actually a problem because, you know, a lot of what we do is quantitative, but not all this stuff lends itself very well to quantitative stuff. And to be honest, um, I just don't understand why people don't do like more of what we call like mixed methods where you have a quantitative and a qualitative. And I think that's because (laughs) to give an example, you know, from the actual training side of things, uh, My impression when I first started was that what I really wanted to get and what I thought periodization promised me was essentially I could find an Excel spreadsheet somewhere that would tell me Mm, everything. I I I would click in one number. It would generate the entire thing. I'm like, sweet. All I need to do is exactly what that Excel spreadsheet tells me and I am going to kill it. And there are a lot of things that we really can't quantify and we're not really good at quantifying. And that's a problem because our entire thing is based on quantifying everything. And that's kind of like the complex systems kind of thing that they're trying to solve is how do you marry some of these different things together? Um, and that's why you kind of need a shift because you can't just say it has to be this and pay lip service to the qualitative stuff. It actually needs to be together. I went through to... a,
2: a strong phase where I had a 531 calculator spreadsheet. Oh, yeah. And I was telling people that if you just tell me what your max is on these five movements right now, I can make your whole program for the next three months. Like... Well, I remember, I mean, and I think I told John this
1: and for folks who are wondering, we keep saying John, we're talking about John oh, Kylie okay. <laughs> <laughs> because I read his stuff and was super inspired by it. And it, it changed a lot of the ways that I was thinking about coaching because at the time I was doing, I think what everyone does, which is like looking for all the right puzzle pieces to create the right puzzle to like produce the perfect athlete. And here's this guy coming and talking about biopsychosocial and like the athlete's feelings matter and all this. And it's like, okay, great. But like, how does that change my sets and rep scheme? Like, where's John's, <laughs> where's John's training plans? Like, how can I, what do I do next <laughs> Tuesday? <his> <laughs> yeah. Where's his spreadsheets. And then you realize, like you just mentioned, it's like, it I don't want to say none of that matters, but like, it doesn't matter as much as asking. I think, I think Alex, you sent me the thing on Instagram the other day. It's like, what people think when they think of biopsychosocial and it's this big brain with these Venn diagrams and stuff. And <laughs> the other picture is like what it actually means. And it's a personal trainer with a clipboard asking the lady, like, how are you feeling today? Um, I thought that was fascinating because after years and years of banging my head against the wall, looking for John Kylie's spreadsheets, I was like, Oh, really what he's talking about is just connecting <laughs> with the subjective factors of training and what that truly yeah. means. So it was cool to see that be put into an actual "quote unquote" research paper because maybe yeah. now people will take it seriously.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I should say the other reason that kind of inspired this. So there was John's John stuff, obviously, and that time I had in China influenced me a lot because when I was when I was being coached by him, you know, I'd always ask him because, like, the Chinese for anybody who doesn't know, when it comes to weightlifting, are without a doubt even historically like considering how well they're done they're the best weightlifting nation mm-hmm. bar none like they just destroy everybody
1: there's gonna be a lot of coaches out there talk oh the russians but no the bulgarians like how yep. dare but you but
0: actually <laughs> if you look at the medal counts they have now outdone what the soviet union ever did so like just you know it's the medal counts the medal counts so yeah yeah and so i was like okay when i went there i was like i need to find out their version of the spreadsheet like what is the magic formula apart from technique what's the magic sauce that these guys have and so I'd asked him like okay so like how do I do the plans because he was also going to help me learn I was like how do I do the periodization Mm
2: -hmm. he doesn't
0: speak much English so we're using a lot of like translation he said something into his phone once because I asked him like, okay so you know if this is the plan for the month like whatever like how do I do it if I'm not he essentially said the plan is dead, you are alive, which is a very kind of Chinese sounding proverb, but is essentially saying that when you wrote that plan, you know, you wrote, once you finish writing that plan, you know, it's finished, right? This is this is the week, even though this is the week's training, that is a based on everything that you knew up until that point in time that you put your pen down. You continue moving through time and change and adapt and have life experiences continuously. So he was like when he wrote plans and this is what he told me like his coach did for him they would have very loose plans 100 mm-hmm. percent with the idea that something is going to change and not with a lot of very stiff numbers you more or less what you really had is ideas about what you wanted to do because you looked at the athlete or you, you talked to the athlete you saw their progression this is kind of what we need to work on next let's work on that and once you started training you'd see how they would respond to that okay this is working this isn't working take that out put this back in okay they need to deload now cuz they seem to be like you know not really recovering and i said okay well how do you figure all of that out and he said well uh, our coaches spend a lot of time with our athletes and you know he would tell me that uh, until you're like one of the best weight so like one of the best weightlifters he's very close with his coach you know in between training they'd be having tea together They'll be doing all this kind of stuff so that in between, like, by the time he hits the training hall, the coach already knows because the coach has been around him for a large, you know, WhatsApp and blah, blah, It's like, I know exactly what kind of situation. And the more time you spend with them, you know, it's like being married. The more time you got, you can kind of pick up on certain kind of things like, hmm, they're mm-hmm. in that kind of mood or whatever. So you can start to read signals based on them, just like in friendships, I guess. Mm-hmm was a really big thing for him he said like i have lots of people from the quote-unquote west asking me about this stuff but they don't really seem to understand there is actually no magic like we don't do anything special with our training um we just spend a lot of time that all these other things are really really important and that that to me for me is that what's really reflected in that particular one about the rankings was this idea that you know a lot of that other stuff that people think is really nice, but non-essential is actually essential Mm -hmm. because it will have a real impact. If anything, you want to nail all that other stuff because that will allow them to do what you think is your golden plan that's going to take them to wherever they want to be. Because until you get that stuff in line, they won't be able to do it.
2: So we, we said at the top of this that you didn't have a ton of familiarity with tactical, but I think you're getting at something that's kind of core to the tactical conversation is that the number of coaches in a military organization is never gonna be enough where they're gonna get to know athletes that way. But that gets back to one of the core kind of conversations that's always happening is that their team leaders and squad leaders, their sergeants are going to know them. They are with them all the time. They do know that kind of stuff. And that helps reinforce the role of those people in making sure the training we're delivering to them is not an Excel spreadsheet. It might've started as an Excel spreadsheet, but that, that spreadsheet gets filtered through somebody who knows the person and understands the stressors they're going through and understands the rest of what they're doing at work and all these other factors. I think that's a kind of foundational thing for this whole tactical piece of the conversation.
1: Well, it's almost like the coach
2: then, and I I realize we're getting into like the weeds with the
1: tactical stuff here, but you know, the coach, cause one of the, one of the questions Casey that we get is like, what, what does the coach do in this world where there's one of them and there's 2000 athletes? It's like, well, there could be a world where the coach creates the template. And then like Alex just mentioned, you know, you have these filters that it gets filtered through based on the, the sergeants and the platoon leaders that know intimately their soldiers. And if, if we educate those people on how to affect, like almost like you were sitting there with your phone, translating this guy, speaking to you in Chinese, it's like, well, maybe that the, the person at that level translates translates what the coach is saying, which may look like Chinese to some of these soldiers and then <laughs> delivers the training. And it's, it's, it's tweaked and adjusted based on what that individual knows. And I don't know, I, I realize we're sitting here pondering all the world's big questions, but it, it makes sense when you put it that way, what role those people would serve in an organization.
0: No, because I would kind of kind of mirror that to in, in the kind of sporting arena, ideally, although let's say you have your coach, you, you know, the, we're talking about the top athletes, by the way, you have your coach, you have your nutritionist, you probably have a, a sports psychologist, possibly a performance psychologist, whatever. And depending on what sport you're doing, you might actually have more than one coach because you might have like your SNC c coach and then you mm-hmm. have like your sports specific coach. Uh, in the ideal, and when I say ideal, I feel like this is, if you have all those, this is 100% how it should be done. Mm-hmm. They should all be talking to each other. They should have a, a, a basic fundamental understanding of what each of the others do. And they shouldn't, be trying to which i think is a problem sometimes create a hierarchy where one is more important than the other if you're all at the belief that all of these things are as equally important and all you each of what your role is is just as important and you all need to be helping the athlete fit each of those you know aspects and get the best then that's a very different way of approaching and then when that for me how that mirrors into what you were kind of talking about is okay so yes the coach cannot talk to maybe like all 20 people i don't completely get that mm-hmm. but what the coach can do is explain certain things create a template and then talk to like say would you say like like heads of mm-hmm. platoon or whatever yeah. get input from that because they spend a lot of time so i think a lot of it comes down to actually creating ways for having a better free flow of dialogue and communication between all the different parts um but also respecting what each of those parts do and not believing that one part is like that is like the most important bit like the coach is not more important than the platoon bit because there's stuff that the platoon mass or whatever will know that the coach won't Mm -hmm. and without them together you just get an inferior kind of products so to speak at the end
2: for sure so it i find it fascinating because all of our conversations seem to like come back to Goodhart's Law and McNamara's fallacy, neither of which have anything to do with exercise science. So there's no reason you'd be familiar with them. But you you kind of laid out McNamara's fallacy earlier. And I think it's funny that it comes from a military context. But the idea is it's a it's a leadership fallacy where people want to only make decisions based on things that can be quantified. And therefore, they assume that only quantitative things are important.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: I think that's probably at the root of a lot of this research methods problem here Mm -hmm. is that partially it's just the nature of research that's getting in our way because people are going to run studies that are easy to set up, easy to Mm -hmm. quantify, easy to come to clear conclusions. You can make a nice looking graph based on it. You can give them a nice R squared value and all the things they want. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that that is leading us to not studying things that practitioners have identified as crucial. and. Obviously, McIntyre's fallacy is not sports science, but I think it clearly applies in this situation.
0: Definitely. I mean, if I had to kind of encapsulate one of the big parts of my research streams that I'm interested in is understanding what coaches think. And the other bit I think is also really interesting is understanding how they have come to that. Some of it might just be real BS type stuff, and that's cool. Everybody has that. But I think there's a really interesting way of, you know, sports science is young, but what's not particularly young is people have been lifting weights, let's say weights, for thousands of years. And people have been doing some kind of sports games also for more than likely thousands of years. And people have passed knowledge down about how to do certain things. Now, I'm not trying to make the fallacious kind of thing of, you know, oh, because it was always done that way. You know, that's the best way to do it. But I think what we know looking at longitudinal studies is if you start to see people all doing the same thing and getting similarish kind of for similar reasons and getting similar responses you can probably triangulate on some key things there that are important in getting the results that you want mm-hmm. and i think that's something that we're not doing particularly well at this point in time so
2: when I read your paper, it made me think of another researcher. And I want to ask you, have you ever read any of Ellen Langer's work? No. So it that does not surprise me because her work is not physiology. It's not exercise it's a science. Question. It comes from like psychology realm. But it, they yeah. she did a couple that are like very related to exercise science that made it into the New York Times and stuff like that. And I want to ask like you to readers to go check it out <laughs> and like frankly, I would love to have Ellen on here as a guest at some point. I'll try. Yeah, but, Ellen uh, Langer, big fan of the show. Hey, Ellen, right? But uh, <laughs> the the two she's done several, but the two that stand out. Um, one is like colloquially known as the the housekeeper study. Oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was done on uh, like room attendants working at a hotel chain, and the intervention was just that they talked to them about how the things they were doing looked like exercise, so they should be getting exercise like results. Uh-oh.
0: Yeah. yeah. I've, I've read this one. I, I, cause there's another researcher on it. Uh, Alia Crum, I think or, who did I think on the yeah. milkshake study as well. So, yeah, so heard,
2: Ellen yeah. Ellen was her collaborator on the milkshake study as well, which is the next thing I was going to talk about, yeah. milkshake um, which milkshake is, study. That, yeah, it's, it's literally
0: very interesting. The, uh,
2: the, the way people digest food changes based on their perceptions of that food and like their mm-hmm. satiety and the way ghrelin responds. Yeah. It's, it's astonishing. And like, because I was reading your stuff and like looking up Ellen Langer and Aaliyah Crumb before this, I they've done some other stuff that I hadn't even seen until I read your piece, which is that the uh, blood glucose response to eating Mm -hmm. correlates more strongly with perceived time than actual Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Like if you change the clocks in the room, people are in while they are digesting and they Mm -hmm. like keep checking that clock. If the clock's slow, their blood glucose levels will respond slowly and if the clock's fast mm. their blood glucose levels will respond faster than you'd expect like we I think we're like on the precipice of realizing that like the way human bodies respond to things is is way more complicated and way more like mindset driven and mm-hmm. way more psychologically influenced than a lot of exercise science wants to make it sound
0: I couldn't agree more I think so after my chinese coach and then John or somebody who influenced me a lot is actually my brother because completely different area of academia. There's an anthropologist. So they obviously do a whole different set of stuff. They study people and they're normally what we might call indigenous people in their societies, et cetera, et cetera. And through his stuff that he would introduce me to what, and this kind of comes back to complex system stuff is, you know, so if you have like, you know, In the biopsychosocial model, we talk to death about biological. We're starting to embrace psychological. The bit that we've never really talked about is social. Mm -hmm. And social, not exclusively, but to a strong extent, uh, influences psychological. Because that tells you, to a certain extent, how to believe, how to comprehend the world. What do these signs, symbols, all that kind of stuff mean? Why do we do certain things? Why do certain things happen to us, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the bit that we haven't really, I think, at least looked at at all in the training stuff. And I'm not sure maybe maybe the, uh, I mean, because I should say societal and culture can be interchanged sometimes. And that works at different levels. So you could have like what you might call like your gym culture as internally with your training group, you could have like a military culture or whatever, but that also then sits subsumed within like greater cultures. So, you know, normally as I said in anthropology, they deal with indigenous people. So maybe if you have a small tribe somewhere in the Amazon or whatever, you know, they have a greater cultural thing. And so it's kind of like that uh, Russian nesting doll kind of thing. So they all sit within certain different levels of each other. Hopefully some of that makes sense somewhere. And so I think that's the bit that we haven't really talked because when an athlete comes to you as a coach, you need to understand where they're coming from and where they're coming from might not be exactly where you're coming from. Even if you are in the same country, I mean, you know, lots of these places, very multicultural America, the UK. So if they come from certain backgrounds, they might interpret certain things to be done in a certain way. People should act in a certain way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Anyway, yeah, I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes because I definitely have a, a tendency to do that.
1: Well, no, I, I think it's interesting you say that because, again, speaking about the tactical space, I, I think one thing that we have readily available to us as coaches that could potentially lead to some interesting you know, studies is the military does climate surveys all the time. Mm-hmm. And you could get a pretty good, I would say a pretty good proxy for the overall maybe the, maybe it's not necessarily the culture of an organization, <laughs> but certainly the the temperature and, and what do they think about their leaders? What it, you know, mm-hmm. and I, it'd be, it'd be curious to lay something like that next to a training plan. And you, you know, you feasibly, you could give the same training plan to two different companies or platoons, and then you could compare the climate survey and, and see what the environment does to training outcomes. I just think like, the military, you know, we, we bash a lot of the things sometimes tongue in cheek, but I think that the military does a great job at getting a sense of the the culture or the environment at different levels. And so, like I said, there's there's probably a really good opportunity there for seeing what impact that type of thing has on, on training outcomes.
2: Quick insert for the listeners, Diox is the name of the survey that's conducted. It's a, let me see, I think I got it here, Defense Organizational Climate Survey. Is that you what that stands probably, for? Yeah, you guys probably know it as the huh. Command Climate Survey. It's constantly being conducted every time there's a change of command, like one year through the command, it, like, and it's def- Department of Defense-wide. So like every service, every echelon of command, they're monitoring command climate and mm-hmm. looking at that up the chain. I mean, it's effectively monitoring culture, if you think yeah. about it.
1: So mm-hmm. look at us just solving all these problems. But I wanted to ask... <laughs> because and we've asked this question before to a number of folks that have pretty strong opinions and stances on human performance mm-hmm. if you were given kind of the keys to the castle so to speak and could construct a <laughs> construct a curriculum how like how would you go about including a lot of this subjective biopsychosocial intangible insert whatever buzzword you want how would you inject this into a young coach's education that right now we would think spend so much time talking about reps and sets and periodization structures and planning and blah, 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 blah.
0: Um, okay. So I guess the first question just to uh, contextualize it is, is this, are, we, are you talking about like a degree program type thing? Or are you talking about like doing an SCA? Because obviously that just because that gives time. Sure. Like, sure. Well, so, it's your,
1: you, I, listen, I gave you the keys, whatever okay. you want to do.
0: Okay. Well, let's say, cause I mean, I was surprised to know until about, you know, when I've just started doing masters that they have S and C degrees now. So I didn't, that, that would blew my mind. So you can do a degree in strength and conditioning. So that gives you then, at least in the British context, that gives you three years. And in some other places, I know it gives you four years, depending on how long your degree program lasts. Um, I think it really starts with teaching the base bits, if that makes sense, because Mm -hmm. I think we are definitely like, heavy towards uh, physiological which is technically biological kind of stuff um we're not very good at integrating the other stuff i actually don't think i would spend teaching what we would call the traditional stuff the training that mm-hmm. kind of stuff i would spend very little time on that like um the the stuff that people really want to know or like we said we we thought that we really want to know which is like the sets and reps and blah blah blah, blah, blah. i would spend very little time on that because all of those things that we look at, those are like really what are called like surrogate measures to a certain extent. Like you say you're going to do this because you think it's going to do that. But at the end of the day, you don't know what's actually happening when you're doing some of this training. So, so that I don't go too long winded on this. I would just say that I actually don't think you need to spend that much time on it because if there's anything that the research has shown, there is a million ways to increase some imp- increase somebody's muscle mass. Increase their maximal strength, increase their speed, all the factors we look at for in sports. If you can, if you, you there are so far too many ways to do it. Um, and that's because of the individual factors that we've previously talked about. So I would spend a lot less time on the actual physical act of training. Um, it's funny you should say this. I'd actually thought about this about a few months ago, what I'd want on it. I think you have, you should have a really, really strong grounding in interpersonal skills, which is mm-hmm. a really weird thing that people might suggest, but that's kind of like the crux of coaching um, because the and I can imagine it's also to a certain bit in the military. If I have an athlete in front of me, um, I, John says sometimes you know you don't need the best of friends. I agree, but you have to have at least some base level of respect. If that athlete in front of you hates your guts, but they respect you, you might be able to get some with that. Because I know that's definitely like a lot of films have been portrayed around that. You know, we hate the coach, but damn, we respect him kind of situation. And, you know, <laughs> cool, whatever. If that's if that's get you going, some machismo kind of thing, cool. But at, you still have to respect and believe. So that requires certain kinds of way of interacting with that person. So I think just like we just talked about with the biopsychosocial, I would actually reverse that order to a certain extent. And I would have people learn about social stuff, psychological stuff. And then finally, the biological stuff, Um, because the reason that is, is that out of those three, two are a lot easier to visually and uh, tactfully understand and change. The last one, the biological, unless you go down the, I don't know, not wanting Soviet-esque kind of era stuff. you don't have a lot of direct influence over biology like Mm -hmm. i can tell you what to eat that still doesn't as we just heard that still doesn't sell me that that biological reaction is going to happen the exact way that i want it to happen but i can affect certain things at a psychological much easier and have feedback on it and at a societal level to a certain level because i can affect you know who you, you know, this is not a dictatorial kind of way, but I can talk to family members who might be your support network, your friends, whatever, you know, so I can move around. I can interact with that stuff a lot easier. I can have an impact on that. The biological one is quite a difficult one to have an impact on. So I think that that's, you should understand it, but I think that we probably place way too heavy an emphasis on it. So
1: is it the, so it should be the... Psychosocial bio model. Psychosocial. We should just change the name. Social psycho bio model. Yeah, there you go. Yeah,
2: creating new models. (laughs) So this is this is going to be a little bit of a cynical take here. I think a core part of the problem is that the things you're discussing are hard to put on a PowerPoint slide and hard to write a test question for. And I think those things drive what gets put into curriculum because that is the Mm -hmm. easiest way to manufacture curriculum. Yeah, I, I know, think the key that's word not... you just
0: said it is there. Is is you want to manufacture something? You want mm-hmm. to manufacture a coach. You want to manufacture an athlete. I mean, that's what periodization essentially is. You want to manufacture an athlete. Yeah, and that's cool if you want to strip that athlete of any essence of them being an individual to a certain level. But I just don't think there's any proof that that will ever work, mm-hmm. um, or is actually helpful.
2: At the core of what we do here, right? Like what is mops and moes, Measures of performance versus measures of effectiveness. I think what we're talking about right now is how do we move from measures of performance, like you've manufactured curriculum, you've trained people, you've given them degrees, all that kind of stuff, to measures of effectiveness is the stuff you taught them serving them well in the work they actually have to do. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a little bit harder question.
0: Yeah, uh, I agree. Um, I also think though that we probably don't, Um, reflect on that question nearly as much as we probably should. Um, I'm not sure what it's like in the States, but in the UK, I would say that if you do a particular kind of degree program, let's say you do sports and exercise science, which tends to be like the catch-all kind of one, definitely year one, it's almost going to be the exact same. In fact, most of them will probably have, I mean, you can have selective modules, but there'll be certain modules that everybody has to do um, and you'll get them mm-hmm. through different parts of your three-year degree program, um, because they'll be considered the fundamentals, so to speak. And that, those are the, the what it, we consider the fundamentals are probably the things that we should be reviewed on a very frequent basis. Because if anything, that's kind of what science is all about to a certain extent. <laughs> we sometimes we question the fundamentals, but we seem to be in that place where we think that the fundamentals are now the fundamentals, and the fundamentals are never going to change. Therefore, why question them? And I have actually heard somebody with a PhD previously in conversation with John talk about that. We don't need to question those things like that. I was like, I like who,
1: understand. which like, again, sorry, I'm, I'm I'm on a soapbox here, but like I can count on zero fingers. The times I've given a shit about actin, myosin, and cross bridges when it comes to training an athlete. But like you just mentioned, you go through these fundamentals and it's like, if you could, uh, this is obviously a little extreme, but, remove all of that I, I would just be curious take two two bodies two, you know two collections of students one group gets the fundamentals track the traditional track the other group remove all of that entirely and just throw in interpersonal communication education psychological education do that instead and see who produces better athletes 10 20 years down the road cuz again krebs cycle don't give a shit actin myosin cross bridges don't give a shit lever arms fulcrums don't give a shit <laughs> how to communicate with an athlete when they've had a bad day. That's yeah. a skill that it plays a very big role in whether or not they're going to perform on the back squat.
0: And I think one of the things is, and like if people want to know that stuff, like I'm down, like if you want to sure, like, go cool. read that stuff, but I think from my take, at least the reason why people want to include that stuff is still because we have this idea of this. If you understand the very basic stuff that's happening that like, a biochemical level, you then build up from there. Mm-hmm. So if I can make that happen, okay, what trans- What does that translate to each level above? So you're working from the bottom up. So, and I'm just, I just like really question and like, that's not to say it's, you know, I'm it's definitely early in my stage of my career. So that's fine. But I would love somebody to tell me exactly how they think a coach knowing that is say made better than them having good interpersonal skills with their athlete or the ability to just to communicate with people effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, because a sports scientist, that's different. They, they probably would want to know that if that's their area of research, but like how often do you get to test that or whatever, you know, when you're out in the field? I don't
2: know. So what I, what I want to do here is just quote you to you and then let you contextualize the quote. <laughs>
1: Okay. A great scientist once said.
2: <laughs> "So Straight out of your paper. If training research continues as present, the field runs the risk of not only becoming detached, but increasingly irrelevant to those it is trying to help. I think that's what you're circling around right now. And I just wanted to like lay that out there because I think it's a fantastic point.
0: Yep. I think some people might think, Oh, that's a bit of an extreme kind of statement no. to make. Uh, but, because it is contextualized within that paper that what we're saying is that, again, the idea that sports science is to help coaches and athletes, you know, improve performance and performance is a very catch all, you know, because that's not just like doing perform physical performance, but, you know, just general well-being, all that kind of stuff in it. But if we aren't talking to them, then how in the world do we know what we should be researching to help them? I just don't understand that. Mm -hmm. I mean, and people were like oh well obviously we have conversations because like you know when I was at AUT like there's um high performance sport New Zealand which is like the national kind of body that deals with high performance sport and so they offer different services strength conditioning all that kind of stuff they collaborated notionally with my university so we had PhD (laughs) students who were getting their PhDs through the university doing their research though while embedded in high performance sport New Zealand and the reason I say that is that that is not the same thing. That is you paying for a PhD student to come do a piece of research that doesn't still doesn't tell me where you guys are at and that doesn't really help the rest of the sports scientists. And I feel like there has a, been a chasm that's kind of like opened up, um, between, um, practitioners and, uh, academia. Uh, I'm not quite sure why, because it's interesting, although, you know, I'll make jokes of the Soviet Union and that kind of stuff, which I was die-hearted into uh, in terms of their sports stuff um, at the beginning. Uh, they did have a lot of collaboration between sports scientists and, you know, like Matveyev, the guy who invented periodization. He was also a coach. Verkashansky, who did another one of the most famous kind of periodization kind of things. He was also the guy that was popularized plyometrics and the whole ton mm-hmm. of other stuff. So a lot of these people were coaches as well as sports scientists. I'm not quite sure what that balance looks like looks like now. And mm-hmm. so if you're not coaching, and you're not talking to coaches, then how in the world? And I think talking like an like we we're having a conversation here. Okay, that's cool. But that's very different. That's like you know if you if that was the extent to which you're going to do it, it's going to take a long time for you. Like you know. How many conversations like this would I have to have to get 106 responses from something as simple as a survey? That's a lot of conversations with more coaches than I probably actually know in person. And so I just think that doing this just gets it out there. And I think it means for those people who don't know coaches or don't have those connections or whatever, doing this kind of research just really allows people to be like, hey, so this is where coaches, some coaches, I'm going to say all, some coaches are at. This should give us food for thought about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I should say there's another study that was done called like, I don't know, like 2008 or something like that, um, where they highlighted things that coaches were interested in, the areas of research they were interested in. And if I had to use a catch-all term, I would say that they were more, most definitely interested in what we would call the soft skills they were not particularly interested in the training stuff, which I find interesting because I'm not quite sure why, like I'm in the training research, but I would call soft skills part of training research. But in training research, what we're primarily interested in is programming.
1: Mm -hmm. And I'm not
0: quite sure how we got there, but that's kind of where we're at. So yeah, I think if we don't do more research like this, and this is not just to pump up my research, I mean, anybody should be doing this because there are other people who've done it. But I think if we don't do this stuff, then I don't know how we cannot cease to be considered irrelevant to coaches because we're just not listening to them. And then you kind of have to ask, what's the point? Of, who Who is the research for? What are we doing? It's a good question. You know, in, in places like the UK, Australia, New Zealand, where it comes out of tax, it's just taxpayers paying for a group of people's so <laughs> you know, like, training studies that nobody really cares about anymore. Um, so yeah.
2: Well... I know we're, we're drawn towards a close here, but I did want to sneak in one other one from your piece. You, you cite Thomas Haugen. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Sorry, Tom. Yeah. I'm not a big say. fan of the show. Tom, shout out to him. Yep. What's up, man. But the the citation you have from him is that he, he argues that coaching practice is often years ahead of sports mm-hmm. science. And I think that is something that is pretty well known by people who've been around mm-hmm. it for a while, but surprising to hear for people who are new to it mm-hmm. and I don't know if I have a question to go with that other than like, clearly you agree with it because you cited it, but I just wanted to give you a chance to contextualize it or riff on it.
0: So what I think is really interesting with regards to that. So he is maybe not the only, at the time that he wrote this, maybe not the only, maybe he's a co, but he was definitely an editor at um, one of the top tier journals called IJSPP, which is the International Journal of Sports Performance and Physiology. And this was kind of like an open letter kind of thing because he's also coach. And I think there's now like three or four papers with his name on it, where he did exactly what we talked about, which is that he did longitudinal studies. I guess these were like PhD students, whatever. And they just published like an entire year's worth of training for like different types of endurance athletes. I think he's like, I want to say possibly from Norway, one of the Scandinavian countries. Um, And they just published that kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah i think they are um a lot of the time ahead because going back to what we kind of already touched on before you know these people are doing this stuff for a long time and there's a certain amount of knowledge that gets passed down if you especially if you do get to do things like internships there's kind of like knowledge that gets passed down from the person to the intern each time and so certain bits whatever is the bit that really works that but by and large will stay throughout the entire kind of lineage, let's say, of that 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 coach passes down, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think through trial and error, you know, coaches, even if you only ever work with one athlete, if you work consistently with them um, for a number of years and you track stuff, you've done probably more versions of experiments than most sports scientists will get to do like proper what i would call proper experiments because if you if you think about it let's say now let's say you work with an athlete and they have like a 10 year lifespan in terms of their performance career or whatever that you've worked with them for the entire time um like how much data do you have yes it's only on one individual but as we've just said you can't really extrapolate too much aside from like the most basic fundamentals you can't extrapolate too much between different athletes anyway so they probably have a really good insight about psychology about how certain things affect not sure if that makes sense but i just feel like some of those coaches you know especially if like there's a a group in the states called altus and they mm-hmm. primarily do um like a lot of track and field stuff mm-hmm. and um dan dan faff Dan faff who's yeah. done like track and field for like donkey shoes no offense to me like that's i mean because i have a lot of time and respect for him yeah but you know He's like a goldmine. he would be a goldmine of information. I mean, to be honest, that's why the reason why, you know, I don't want to prolong this, but the reason why I mentioned my brothers, I feel like people should really go out and capture some of that knowledge. Like, Mm -hmm. so in anthropology, they do what they call like ethnographic research, where you go into a group of people, a community, let's say, and you just embed yourself there and you literally just spend time with them. You don't try and go there with any agenda. You just observe casually ask questions let them tell you stuff i'm like i would love to see somebody do that with some like a group like altus or whatever just like because i think there's a lot to to take away from that um and i think if anything something like that is a stuff that is a bridge in my head at least to a certain extent I hope this makes sense between the coaches and the sports scientists because mm-hmm. if a sports scientist gets hold of that they can then have real insights into where coaches are at, what coaches are doing, how they're thinking, be like, okay, well that experiment I just designed. Yeah. That's, that's not going to be of interest that we can just throw that one away. And I just think that, yeah. um, The coaches that I've met that I've been very lucky people like John, people in New Zealand who've been, you know, coaching for, for many, many years. And each one of them I talked to, you know, they have so many insights and make, make me question things that I thought that I read in sports training studies like this is definitely how it's done. And then I talked to them like, nope. Yeah.
1: What's the I'm point of any of it? It's
0: <laughs> not how it's done, is it? You know, so I hope that kind of made sense of that Thomas Haugen kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, I just think that the more we can do that kind of research, the more we can document what coaches are doing um, for those sports scientists out there who <laughs> don't want to or don't have the ability to talk to coaches, I think it's going to help them. Not sure how much that helps, unfortunately, you guys in in the uh, tactical space. But I, when I was prepared, getting ready for this, you know, this call, you know, I was, I was looking up a few things because I didn't want to, (laughs) I didn't want to be a complete idiot of myself. And I realized that, you know, so first of all, like peaking, as we said, makes no sense. But uh, what's really interesting is like everything that's viewed through which John has talked about, like a lot of stuff we do is viewed through like a stress lens. Mm-hmm. And I hope this is going to make sense for you guys. <laughs> um, but like, so stress, like there's a recent paper, I mean, recent, like last five years or so that um, came up with a definition of stress that's well accepted, which is that stress is about like real stress is about thing events that are unpredictable and uncontrollable which for me is a very definition of what you guys would have to deal with if you are out. Now, what I find really interesting is I'm how much of that physical stuff that we do in the gym, I think it's very important because it'll prepare you. For, but really, there's a lot of psychological stuff that actually prepares you um, mm-hmm. for that, which I thought that stuff's important. sports like definitely because it prepares you going to the gym so you don't get freaked out you know doing certain workouts whatever but for you guys like i feel like you know um the soft skills type stuff is even more important because you know you want to build up i guess resilience Mm -hmm. in people in the military and like there is physical resilience but i think that if we look at things like endurance athletes before the physical gives out your mental has a good chance of giving out and that your mental can take you a lot further in your physical than you possibly thought you were able to do or at least that's my read on it
1: no i think it's i think it's exactly true and and it's one of the things that we've talked about a couple of times because the as the military sets up these human performance programs to their credit they they go about it in a very I'll steal the buzzword holistic way. I mean, they provide for the mindfulness piece. They talk about resiliency. They talk about lethality. Like they, they pay lip service to a lot of the right buzzwords. But if you really dig deep, the only metrics being reported have to do with injury prevention and return to duty and PT scores and all that kind of thing. And I think what you're getting at it is, is exactly what the intent of that mental resiliency piece is designed to do which is how do we train soldiers airmen you know whoever to become more mentally robust and and what does that look like and should we be spending more time diving into those bodies of research and figuring out like you mentioned what does stress actually mean how do you encapsulate that how do you feed that into a training program etc again like on a bit of a pedestal but it's always curious When you have smart people on this podcast, hear them say a lot of the same things, which is this stuff matters. How do we encapsulate that? How do we look at that? And you you did an excellent job here teeing up what we'll call the closing question, because I think we could keep you on here for hours talking. I mean, I'm already (laughs) thinking of future episodes, where we're going to wrangle you back in here. But you've touched on this a couple of times. I know you mentioned you've got the episodes two and three coming out uh, at some (laughs) undisclosed point in the future. So When you, when you think of the body of research that you're most excited about and and future work that you might have, what is, what does that look like for you? What, what future research directions are you looking at? Where can we see your name in lights in the future?
0: So there are, I guess what you would call like the sexy kind of bit and like the not so, but I think is really important. So, um,
1: Hey, beauty is subjective.
0: Okay. So I am going, to, I would like to. Um, I'm hoping that my super, my non-John uh, Kylie PhD supervisor doesn't hear this podcast until I actually get to have this conversation with him. I don't think he is because he's German. So we have him on. But yeah. Um, but essentially what I want to do is I want to do another survey. Um, and I've teed up some people. Um, and essentially it's going to ask coaches what they actually think about sports science and particularly training theory and not just about topics but like how we go about it how useful they find it do they find it translates if they do how do they translate it because there's a lot of vague notions about how you translate that stuff like okay so we could say yeah i do four sets of eight to twelve reps but like how do you know like because like a lot of studies as we've already discussed and i mean all you have to do is read the study to realize this do not mirror what coaches are dealing with mm-hmm. you know that study that you know says that you know you did these number of reps maybe did like one exercise it's like and even if they did three or four exercises um like a bodybuilding s looking thing they still didn't do their sports training on top of that so like how do you feed all of that in like th- how does that make sense into what you're doing? Like if you say, yeah, so you need to do like, you know, train to failure to increase like muscle size or, or whatever. It's like, cool. Well, how do I get them to train to failure? While I also need them to go perform and do their sports related stuff. Like they are going to be like absolutely dead to me um, the next morning. So like, I am interested in how coaches see that and is it like take it with a grain of salt or like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Let me play around that with my head and maybe we'll try it one day or, like, I'm really interested in how do they take that stuff mm-hmm. um, because I don't think we've really looked at that. And what do they think about what we're doing? Do they? I guess what I want to do is I want them to do like a Google review of sports science. Like, how do you rate us? What kind of job do you think we're doing? You know, do we get like a five star rating or are we like lagging behind at two out of five stars? Like, how are we doing for you guys um, since we're here to help? essentially, notionally. Um, and then the other kind of area that I'm interested in, which is the not-so, maybe mainstream interests of people, is going back to that kind of cultural stuff that we talked about. Given my experience going to China, and there's some, a guy over here, I'm sorry, in England, who did some interesting research with Ethiopian runners, there was a really different interpretation of how they explained what they were doing training for now, Ethiopian runners are like some of the best runner, like long distance runners in the world. You know, they with the Kenyans mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. But um, in his book, when he went to train with them and live with them for a year, the reasons that they gave for doing the training would not make sense to most sports scientists, probably to coaches, but not to sports scientists. Like you know, they would say, "Yeah, we go run at this forest." you know, for recovery runs because the air is good and it's cool and all these kind of things, which we would call like esoteric in this kind of stuff. But like, hey, they would be turning out like, you know, killer runners left, right, and center. So clearly they it might not make sense to you, but whatever they're doing at some level is kind of working. So I want to understand how some of these other places, and I guess this is I don't want to drag on song, is that a lot of what we do comes from a very small bit of the world. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, there are other places that might have different place ways of understanding and, you know, doing stuff and they're winning medals just as well. So,
1: Mm -hmm. yeah, man. Well, let me be the first to say that we're going to put you on retainer because the future research directions are going to create some really cool conversations, but in all seriousness, I know with the time difference, these things can be tough. So thank you so much for coming no, no. on <laughs> on a Saturday.
0: I, so you know, you can delete this bit out, but I'm, I apologize for even suggesting 9am GMT. but I was like, I don't know really where to begin. I have no idea. Like, hey, it
1: works for me. Stakes, Alex, but Alex, Alex like... screwed us up by going two hours. west. Yeah. So sorry. I'm a couple hours. west. It's but his fault. Okay. <laughs> but man, thank you for coming on. This was awesome.
0: Oh, thank you for bringing on. It was great talking to you guys. Uh, I hope I just hope that Alex or Drew, whichever one has to do it, doesn't have to do too much editing work to <laughs> try and make some like seamless like that makes sense as a logical conversation. We
1: we'll just piece <laughs> together individual words yeah, to create exactly. the sentences that we need. No, this was this was uh, awesome.
0: GPT will fix it. Sure. <laughs> there we go.
1: Oh man.
2: Hey Alex, let's cover our ass real quick. Oh, great idea, Drew. All right, guys. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent.
1: Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Before you go, please rate and review the pod on the listening platform of your choice. You can also visit us on our website at www.mopsinmos.com. That's mops, the letter inmos.com. You can check out the library of podcast episodes our latest blog entries, any helpful resources, and
2: also sign up for our newsletter. Drew nailed it. Just to underline a couple of things, the podcast entries have in-depth show notes on the website. So if you missed anything or you want to read any of the research we talk about, it is all there. You can, at the bottom of the website, sign up with your email and receive future updates from us. The blog posts go a little bit more in depth in kind of written form on a couple of topics we get questions about all the time. But most importantly, I just want to ask all you guys, our best way the word gets out is absolutely word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell the people you work with, anybody you think would find it useful. Thanks for spreading the word. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot us
1: an email at either Drew or Alex at mopsandmos.com.
2: Or there's a contact form on the website. Thank
1: you.